The following audio message by Dudley Hall is presented by Kerygma Ventures. More information is available at www.kerygmaventures.com. Well, glory. This is Dudley. Great to be back with you again. Hey, we had great response uh, last time from doing the video instead of just the audio on this monthly message. So thanks for responding to us. And if you like it, uh, uh, get somebody get somebody else involved as well as yourself. And we'll keep trying to make them better, of course, uh, as we as we learn more. Hey, I'm going to be talking to you about about prayer this time, and so I want to recommend to you a couple of uh, resources. Uh, I some time ago did a uh, conference seminar, if you will, on prayer called Enjoying Prayer. So we have both the audio and the video of enjoying prayer instead of just enduring it or whatever. And so it's, there's some really good stuff in there. So I recommend it to you. You can call the office, go online, get it. You ought to be going online and finding out the kind of resources we have anyway. One of the things that's coming up in March, 24th, 25th, 26th of March, is the EPIC conference. This is this will be the best conference you've, you've attended in quite a while and maybe will attend for a good long time. It really is a great conference. It, it is on the gospel and how the gospel is, uh, how we interpret the scripture in light of the gospel how we pray in light of the gospel, how we live in light of the gospel. It, it's all about the epic story. There will be breakout sessions, all kind of wonderful stuff. Go online, check that out. You need to register for that. And uh, it, it gives you the hotels uh, that are participating with us in the whole thing. There'll be uh, some meals provided. It's, it's a full-fledged conference and uh, it's something for you and the whole family. So please consider attending in March this year. This is something better than the family reunion that we did for like 40 years over in Alabama and we've improved on it and got it in a conference format and and you're going to love it. So go online and do that. Hey, I've been studying first Peter for a good while now all year and uh, I plan to teach it in January in uh, Sojourn Church in Carrollton, Texas. And uh, so in the matter of, of getting into First Peter, I was, the reason for getting into it is because First Peter tells you how to live in a hostile culture as a representative of the kingdom of God. And I feel like that's apropos for where we are. We are living in a, a, a culture that's increasingly hostile to the Christian worldview. And uh, if you don't know how to live in that, then the, you, you'll be adversely affected by that. So the study on First Peter is uh, is really, really important. In the middle of studying it, I saw several things that I'd never noticed in First Peter. You know, First Peter is not one of those books that, just, that you hear people say, that's my favorite book. You know, I, I run into people who, who say, well, Galatians is my favorite book, or Ephesians is my favorite book, or the Gospel of John is my favorite. Hebrews is my favorite. I don't know that I've ever run anybody who said First Peter is my favorite New Testament book. It's a great book, and uh, I recommend it highly. In the middle of studying it, I noticed something. Several times in the book, Peter talks about motivations for doing things and connects that motivation with, for the sake of your prayers. And I got to looking at it and realized that Peter evidently thought 
that the privilege and responsibility of prayer was very, very high. In fact, it was at the very core of our calling and and our meaning and our purpose that, that God had in mind. I'll tell you what, what they are. One is in First uh, Peter chapter 3, where he is uh, talking about the family. Peter has said, we live in the middle of a uh, unfriendly culture where the government may not be friendly to you. So here's how you respond to it. And so he gets into the discussion of the institutions that God has ordained that we are to live in submission to, one of them being the family. So he talks to wives about how husband can be one to the Lord without the wife preaching to them, but by their chaste manner of living and with the right kind of attitude. And then he says, uh, husbands are to live with their wives according to knowledge, understanding that they are the feminine one, uh, a weaker vessel, and understanding their equality and their uh, unique nature. And then he adds this phrase, for the sake of your prayers, talking to husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge for the sake of your prayers. And then later on in chapter three, he's talking about our speech toward uh, and our attitude toward those who would persecute us unjustly, say things against us, and maybe even do things against us. And our our reaction of vengeance, bitterness, uh, coming against them, reviling, whatever. And he says, instead of doing that, bless, because after all, you were called to be a blessing. You were called to, to be blessed and to be a blessing. And he quotes from Psalm 34. And in that text, he is saying that if you will uh, align your speech with the speech of God and align your life with the word of God, then there's blessings upon you. And the blessing will be that God's ears are open to your prayers and he will answer your prayers. So again, we see that praying, getting your prayers answered, being effective in your prayers, having your prayers unhindered is a major goal. And then in the in chapter four, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, Think sanely and soberly for the sake of your prayers. In other words, know what time you're living in history and pray, uh, think, and then pray accordingly because uh, it can affect your prayers. Your eschatology can affect your prayers. So it it got me to thinking about this whole thing of, I don't know that... uh, I've ever really thought about, wow, I need to be, I need to be thinking about how I make these decisions because it could affect my prayer. I need to be thinking about my speech, about it it could affect my prayer life. I need to treat my wife right for my prayer life. I need to, I need to have my eschatology right for, for the sake of my prayers. I don't know. Do you, is that the way you think? Do you know Christians who think like that? So they're so they're so uh, focused uh, into their prayer life that everything that they do or every decision they make, they would say, well, here's the question I ask. Is it going to enhance my prayer or is it going to hinder my prayer? Uh, is it going to make my prayer life better? 
I, I don't think I don't think many people think that. We we more more likely are to think, is it going to make me have more peace? Am I going to have more effectiveness? Am I going to enjoy life better? Is it, will there be more prosperity and health, wealth, you know, all that kind of stuff, rather than for the sake of my prayers. So that's why we're studying that uh, this month. So the first thing I want to do is go to to Jesus. What what did Jesus say about prayers. A lot, obviously, but what I want to do is go to the last discourse Jesus had with his disciples, and these are the last hours that he's spending with them on the earth, and he's talking to them about what's about to happen and what will be the end result of his, what he's about to do, and so forth. So he says, I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to fix it with the Father so that you will have the same relationship with the Father that I do. And as a result of that relationship, you will be able to do the same works that I do because you can ask and the Father will do it. So he is picking up on the biblical theme that God has always designed and desired to have a people on the earth who were his partners, who represented him on the earth. They were his physical representative. They were his image bearers so that we are on the earth and we represent him and we get, we see things on the earth that need to be changed and that they need the kingdom of heaven to come from heaven to earth and to impact it. And it is our privilege to call in those forces, to call heaven to earth. Remember Jesus in in his model prayer had said something that Effect when he said, when you pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, so this emphasis has been since the Garden of Eden, that mankind is God's representative. And of course, you know, once sin came into the world, it got all messed up. But Jesus came back to illustrate what that looks like. And Jesus lived that way. He, he prayed. He would get in situations. He would ask the Father. Father would move and the Father would do the work. They, you know, they got all enamored with Jesus and he said, hey, you need to understand how this is working. You need to give glory to my father. I don't do anything on my own initiative. I do it as I see what needs to be done. I ask the father, the father acts and things are changed. So he's saying that he's leaving his disciples, including us here on the earth to bring heaven to earth so that if we would not be so concerned about getting people from here to heaven, but getting heaven to here, uh, we might see things change uh, on this earth, which would, would be very pleasing to him. So let me just read you a few texts out of this particular discourse. The first is uh, John fourteen twelve, and, and then we'll look at some of the others. Truly, truly, I say to you that whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father Whatever you ask in his in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So that's in John 14. So he's saying we can do the same works. In chapter 15, where he has said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. That's our relationship. You are the hanger upon which I hang the fruit. You you are my representatives. He, he says this, John 15, 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit 
and so prove to be my disciples. And he, he goes on to say, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So, so here's what he's saying. I'm the vine, you're the branches, you're, you're in union with me. Uh, you are to produce fruit. The fruit that you produce is produced because you'll be asking and the Father will answer and that produces the fruit. That shows the world that how great the Father is and it shows the world that you're my disciple and as a byproduct, your joy will be full. So connecting our prayer life with our fulfillment, our, our own glory. And then in chapter 16, he's talking about the day when when the Holy Spirit is sent to make the Father and the Son real in the disciples' lives. And he says, verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until you've asked, uh, until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. So he's saying in that day, when the Holy Spirit has come to make the relationship with the Father and the Son real, and you understand that we share this common life, then this is how you are to live. You, you don't have to get Jesus to pray for you anymore. You pray using his name and the Father answers it. So it's pretty clear that Jesus is saying that the part of sonship that we need to get a hold of is the partnership part of sonship, that we are God's partners. Like Adam and Eve were God's partners on the earth. Like, like Abraham was God's partner. God used Abraham to get the seed here. Like Noah, prior to him, was a partner with God. Like Moses was a partner. Like David was a partner with God. That God has used his individuals on the earth to get done his way. And the way we do it is through prayer. That is, we, we, we get in a situation, we see what needs to be done, we pray, and uh, God answers. So it's taking that concept of partnership. It, it takes that concept of partnership, I should say, to understand why Peter is saying, hey, it's your prayers that I'm concerned about. You, your, your purpose on this earth, your, your very reason to exist, your, your, the meaning that's in your, the possibility of your joy is, is hinging on these things. And if there are certain things that can hinder your prayer, and that's a, that would be horrible because it's your prayer life that allows you to fulfill your assignment that God puts you here to do. And, and your your own fulfillment, your own joy is going to be uh, connected with that. So, so he deals with these three, three different uh, aspects here. So, so I want to talk about them a little bit. First of all, the, uh, the aspect of the husband thing. Husbands live with your wives according to knowledge. This is a uh, chapter, first Peter three, seven. Husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. The ESV says, showing honor to the woman, the feminine one, as the weaker vessels, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, to be honest with you, I, I read that, I used to read that years ago, and I thought, no wonder I don't get any prayers answered. I don't know how to love my wife properly. I mean, 
there's one translation that says, you know, uh, understand your wives. Well, it, thank God it doesn't really mean that because none of us would make it because who can understand this great mystery that, that God has given in, in the woman and the man? And uh, So it, it doesn't mean you've got to understand her totally, but it does say live with her in an understanding way. It does say live with her according to knowledge. Uh, but but I, I allowed that to be a disqualifying factor for me. It's like, well, shoot, I will never get my prayers answered. I'll never be an effective prayer prayer because I, I, I don't feel very competent in the way I, I nurture my wife and honor my wife and all that. I, I, I got a lot to learn there and I, I feel like I'm such a failure. So I saw it as a disqualifying factor. And that's not at all what Peter's saying. What he's saying is, if, if you don't know how, if you don't live with your wife according to knowledge, your, your prayers will be distracted. You, you'll be distracted from prayer at all or what to pray for or your assurance that you can hear the voice of God and that you're praying. So, so living with her according to knowledge is, is our privilege and he gives us the ability to do that. So he says, I, I just jotted down four hindrances that can happen for the husband and a wife. First of all, if you disregard show disregard for her true nature. God made the woman different. Now I know our culture is trying to erase that and say that there really is no difference and it based it's based on your choice or your feeling or your preference. But but God made a difference. He he made man male and female and he made them to complement each other, to fulfill each other. And there is a difference in the female and the male. And there's a difference in the role of the male and the female. The, the female nature is more nurturing. It is given to that union to bring nurture and, and a level of, or a kind of compassion that the, the male side does not have. And a man needs to know that. He, he needs to know that he needs that as well as the children need that as well as the society needs that nurturing side of, of the woman. Now, the truth is in our day, we have so many men who've given up on their role that they, they have allowed the home to be totally controlled by nurture rather than by destiny and responsibility and accountability. And so we have children who are growing up and, and everything is based on feeling and feeling safe and feeling secure and feeling comfortable and never being pushed out into any level of risk or vulnerability. And so nurture has ruled the day, if you will, in, in too many homes and in our society. So there's a call for men to go, okay, I know, I know the woman's role is nurture, but I have another role. It is to balance that with the call to destiny, the call to responsibility, accountability, uh, the call to risk, the call for vulnerability, the call to step out, the call to for, for change. So to live with a, a weaker vessel, what does that mean? Well, you know, some, some of the commentators would say, well, she, most women are physically weaker than the male, but is that what it's talking about? I don't know, but, but we're to live with her in any area where she might be weaker. Paul, in writing to Timothy, says that as God created man and woman, the, the woman was, because of the way God created her, she was vulnerable to the, to the lies of, of the serpent. 
And a husband who knows that would be protective of her in that area and protect her from those lies. What every husband needs to know, if he knows anything about how God created the woman, is that every day of her life, she hears the enemy saying to her, you're being shortchanged. God doesn't love you as much as he loves the man. Uh, he's overlooking you. Same thing that the devil was saying to Eve in the garden. Uh, almost every woman looks in the mirror and sees something ugly when you and I would look at them and see something absolutely beautiful. So why is all of that? The, the devil is a great reinterpreter. And so a, a man, a husband who knows that will then counteract those lies that, that the devil is telling his wife and his daughter and his granddaughter and, and, that, and his daughter-in-law, all the women in his life. He will say, let me tell you the truth. Here's the truth from God's perspective and and he will counteract those truths and help them to see that they're believing lies. That's living with her according to knowledge. It's understanding the battle she's going through. There are those who think if, if we just get the culture fixed, then women will never have that problem again. The reason they all feel put down is because our, our culture has been uh, oh, man-centered and, and, and not woman-centered. Part of it is is because God has made us different in order to make us better and to make us complementary. So the second thing I jotted down was dishonoring her role. First of all, was disregarding her true nature. Secondly, dishonoring her role, that she is essential, that God looked at man alone and said, uh, not as good as it can be. I, I'm not done yet. And so he made... He made woman. He made the female. And therefore, the female is essential. And it says she's a joint heir, which means she's equal. She's equal in every way. Though, by design, by creation, by calling, by assignment, she has a complementary uh, role, as the husband has a complementary role. And, uh, but it, it doesn't mean that she's not equal. And so he honors her by protecting her, protecting her from the lies of the enemy, as well as protecting her physically or economically or whatever, by leading her because she is created by God in this way. She needs a leader. She needs someone to lead her, to direct her, not to dominate her, to lead her. Uh, so God has, has given that responsibility to the husband who's the head of the family. And she, you honor her by exclusive love for, because she needs to know that, there is, that she is the one love of the husband's life, that she has no fear of, of losing his love, and therefore she's not trying to protect and hold on to him and, and squash the life out of him, if you understand the word squash. He, he can show honor to her by protecting her from these things. And a husband who's not, no matter how many diamonds he buys her, or how many balls he takes her to, how many new cars she gets, he may think he's honoring her with all these things, but, but he's not. He oftentimes is flattering and is using that as a substitute for true honor. The third thing I said that was a hindrance is that you can get self-disqualified by her displeasure. So many of us husbands feel, uh, you know, we want to honor, we want our wives to be at peace. And we know if, if you know, mama's not happy, nobody's happy at home. And so 
what does it take to make her happy? What does it take to, to, to get her not to, to be upset and not to pout and not to, uh, not to try to control what, what, what does it take? Uh, I'll do whatever it takes not to get on her bad side. Well, part of, part of the problem there is men have husbands have this great need to be respected and God has designed that man get his respect at least a lot of it through the channel of his wife. That's, that's, that's the design. She needs to know from him that she is, she's loved uh, exclusively. He needs to know from her that he's respected from her. And sometimes that need for respect can be so strong that, uh, that it becomes that, that, that we lose our confidence. We lose our leadership and we are so afraid of losing their respect or losing their praise or just losing their pleasure, pleasing them, that, that we become punching bags. Well, a guy like that's not going to be praying right. If he prays at all, he's, he's, he's not going to be praying right because he's intimidated. He's living in fear. Uh, his wife's pleasure has become more important to him than God's pleasure. So so is he going to be playing praying about political things or, or social things or, or spiritual things. It, it, no, he's not. He, he's, going to, he's going to be totally distracted by the, the defeat that's going on in his family. Uh, the last thing I jotted down was, and you can also be distracted by her true needs or her imagined needs. You know, there was a time when Paul wrote and said, because of what's going on at the time, because of, of the... Uh, the nature of what was happening at the time, he encouraged uh, some of the people not to get married because he said, when you get married, you have legitimate responsibilities that has to be taken care of. A wife has needs that needs to be taken care of. A husband has needs. If you want to be free from those so that you can concentrate for this period on prayer and so forth, then uh, don't get married right now. Now, I, I don't think that Paul was talking about that as uh, as the natural and the and the normal things, because God made men and women for each other. He He is for marriage, but the point is that there are legitimate needs and, and legitimate responsibilities that take our time and take our attention, and can be distracting to us, even when people when we're just trying to meet legitimate needs. And certainly, it's exacerbated when we're trying to meet imagined needs. And, uh, and of course we, you know, we can only imagine uh, some of the stuff that goes on there. So very practical stuff that, that Peter is saying, look, you guys are on this earth to, to be God's representative, to pray. You're to get into situations so that you can hear the voice of God and you can pray and you can pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But if you are not understanding marriage, if you're not understanding your role or her role in this whole thing, it can certainly affect your prayers. It can affect whether or not you pray and certainly can affect how you pray and how attuned to, to, to the spiritual world you are so that you are, are praying effectively and are praying according to God's will. So uh, our prayers in light of Jesus' promise, first of all. Secondly, our, our prayers in light of domestic privilege. Uh, thirdly, our, our prayers in light of current pressures. So uh, in, in chapter 3, 
as we move along, Peter's saying, look, you are being pressured because you're Christians in a hostile world. And people are saying terrible things about you and, and they're mistreating you. And and that's that's true. You're being unjustly uh, treated. But your problem here is not your persecution. It's your response to those who are doing this stuff. Because remember, you were called to be blessed and to be a blessing. And so he quotes out of Psalm 37, a wonderful psalm that, that you know, taste the Lord and see his goodness and all, all these great promises in there. But in that psalm it says, you want me to teach you the fear of the Lord? Would you like to know? Then you want to live a long, long time and have a good, good time when you're living uh, and so forth? Keep, keep your lips lined up with the word of God. Don't be, don't be saying things that are contrary to God's perspective. And as you do that, then the eyes of the Lord are fixed upon you. The ears of the Lord are tuned into your prayers and you get your prayers answered. So you can, you can not only be blessed, but you can be a blessing. And that was your calling. So, so what, what is the ultimate blessing is that you live in such a way that you get your prayers answered. So again, prayer is, uh, is absolutely essential here. Now, the last thing that he talks about is in chapter four of first Peter, where he says, says this, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be sane and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, what does, what does Peter mean when he says, the end of all things is at hand. Well, a lot of times people have read that and said he means at the end of the world. Peter thought that the end of the world was coming. Well, if he did, he was wrong because that was uh, 2,000 years ago and uh, it, it hadn't happened yet. No, he wasn't talking about the end of the world. What Peter was saying was nothing that needs to be done has been left undone as far as the promises of God, as far as redemptive history coming about. What God has promised through the prophets, what he has predicted, what he has uh, prophesied, all things have been done. Jesus has come to fulfill what, what God said was going to happen so that he could have a people on the earth who could hear his voice, who could represent him on the earth, who could enjoy him, the way he designed mankind to enjoy him and to be his image bearer on the earth. And God has accomplished that. Jesus has come. The day of the Lord has come. The sin has been paid for. Uh, death has been defeated. Jesus has been raised to the right hand of the Father to rule. Holy Spirit has been sent to indwell believers. They are now the people of God who represent God on the earth. And since that is, is what's happened, you need to pray that way. First of all, you need to be sane and sober in your thinking. You need to think in light of where are we in history. Now, if you don't know that, if your eschatology, the study of the end, in, in, uh, in things, if your eschatologist is saying, well, you know, the end of history is about, so we need to be praying that we can get 
uh, you know, we can survive or we can be praying against Russia. We can be praying about what's happening in Iran. Yeah, you can pray about all those kind of things. But if, if you're worried about the end of the world, that's not what he's saying. He is saying you live at a time in the big story of things where you lived on the aft side of the cross. Therefore, you are the people of God that he has been design, designing since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And you have the privilege of prayer. You don't have to beg for your prayers to be answered. You don't have to give sacrifices in order to get into God's presence anymore. You don't have to go to a Levite. You don't have to go to a priest outside of of who you are. You, you, you don't have to live up to any kind of protocol. You don't have to live up to any in conditions. You live on the finished side of the cross and that affects your prayers. So you can pray now in light of how can we, as God's representatives on the earth, how can we see what needs to be done in light of the gospel? How can we pray that God's kingdom will come here in this situation? And then how can we participate in that whole thing? So our prayers become redefined and colored by our understanding of where we live in history. So we are praying with sane thoughts, sober thoughts, spirit-controlled thoughts, so that we are praying in light of where we are, so that we're not, we're not praying out of fear, we're not praying out of vengeance, like, oh, God, come kill all these uh, wicked people. We are we're praying in light of the redemptive work of the cross. And as we do that, then prayer becomes such a joy. It becomes a, it becomes a, a privilege. It becomes fun. It becomes, this is what I get to do in the, in the big scheme of things. This is, this is my assignment. I, I just, again, I'm always jotting down stuff here. So I, I jotted down what sane and sober thinking look, uh, looks like. It means that I believe that the day, the day of the Lord has dawned. Jesus, the light has come. Sin is forgiven. So I, I get to confess my sins, but I don't have to beg or make sacrifice for my sin. The Holy Spirit has come. I'm not asking him to come. I'm not waiting for the day that he comes. I'm, I'm, I, I'm living in light of the fact that he has come. He has come to indwell me as an individual and us as the people of God so that we are the temple. I'm saying in sober thinking means that the restoration that God had promised to Israel when they split and Judah went one way, the southern kingdom, and Israel went another way, the northern kingdom, and they were forever split. And yet the prophets talk about a day when God will bring those two together. And he has done that. How did he do it? He did it in Jesus Christ, who makes it possible for not only for the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of, of the Jews to come together, but even for the Gentiles. So he, he's made one people, tearing down the wall of petition between, between Jew and Gentile, so that the restoration that, that was foreshadowed in the coming together of those two branches 
is actually the resurrection from the dead that makes it possible for all of us to be a part of it. And the last thing I jotted down is, sane and sober thinking means that judgment has come. That Jesus came as the judge and that all judgment now is based on him. It's not based on on my keeping the Ten Commandments or yours. It's not, it's not based on whether you're Israel or not Israel, whether you're Jew or Gentile. It's, it's not based on bloodlines. It's not based on performance. It's not based on the old covenant. It's based on Jesus Christ. And if you have come to Christ as your Savior, then the judgment came on him for you. If, if you have not received him as your substitute, then the judgment comes on you. And that's the one thing that brings judgment upon you. It's not how bad you were, how, how bad a sinner you were that's going to bring judgment. It's what did you do with Jesus? He is the issue of judgment. So every person who has mistreated you is going to get, is going to experience justice. They will experience one of two ways. They will come to Christ and Jesus will pay for their sin. And that would make you happy. Would it not that this sinner who mistreated you has come to know Christ? So if Christ forgives them, you're going to forgive them. Of course. The other thing is if they reject Jesus to be the payment of their sin, then they're going to have to pay for their sin, but justice will be carried out. That's why you don't ever have to worry in this world about, okay, I was mistreated all these bad things happen. It's not right for wicked people to get away with it. No, nobody ever gets away with it. Justice will be done. And it's all based on Jesus Christ. So, so we live with sane and sober thinking so that when we pray, we're praying up to date. We're praying according to what God is doing in our day, not, not praying like Old Testament saints or like, like we weren't believers at all. So isn't it interesting? Don't you think it's interesting that Peter connects uh, all of this ethical living to your prayer life? I want to encourage you to make this year a year of prayer. 2016 was a rough year in many, many ways. But one of the ways that it was very good is that many people began to believe in prayer again. And and they began to see that God's serious about answering prayer. And if we are going to succeed in doing what God told us to do, as he left us on this earth, and that is we are to infect the nations. We are to infect our culture. If we're to do that, we're going to have to do it through prayer. The way that works is we live our lives. We are in these spheres of influence in our homes, in our personal life, in our business, and wherever. And we see things that are contrary to the will of God. Uh, we see things being taught. We see principles being bought into that are not true. We see educational concepts that are not, not right. We see these things that are not aligning with the kingdom of God. We pray. We ask God to intervene. We ask heaven to come into earth. As we pray, God talks to us. He, he may give us some clue as to other things we could do, some, some people we can talk to, some people we can get pray, some, some things that need to be done that could fix it. So we become agents of God's transformation on the earth 
as we pray. But if we don't pray, we will find ourselves trying to fix things in ways that we haven't thought through the unintended consequences and we won't be helping things at all. So I want to challenge you. Join me and make this year a, a, a year of prayer. Therefore, if you see things that are hindering your prayers, then get them fixed. Uh, if, if it's stuff in the home, if it's the way you're thinking about the world or your, your role in the world, if it's the way you're responding to an injustice in your life or criticism or whatever, if you are, if you're hindering your own prayer life, you're hindering your calling, you're hindering your destiny, you're hindering your own fulfillment, your own joy. So join me and let's become prayers this year. And uh, as we do that, we'll, we'll learn how to pray and, and it will become more and more important to us. Okay, I want to pray for you. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being your representatives on the earth. I thank you that you've made us to be uh, the physical part of, of this life. Therefore, you, get, you use us to see what's going on and then you, you let us pray and then you show yourself big in, in our behalf. So please open our eyes and let us see the value of prayer. I pray that for all of, all of these who are listening in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've had fun being with you this time and next time we come together, we'll have fun again as we get into the word of God. Until then, this is Dudley Hall at Kerygma Ventures. Thank you for listening to this message by Dudley Hall from Kerygma Ventures. Additional copies of this resource, as well as a wide range of discipleship materials, is available from our website. You may make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Dudley Hall or Kerygma Ventures, please visit us online at www. Dot .charigmaventures.com That's K E R Y G M A V E N T U R E S dot com